If I haven't had a chance to meet you, uh, I'm Nate Sheard, and I'm one of the pastors here at, at Cornerstone. And, and if this is your first Sunday with you, with us, um, God bless you. We're glad that you're here. Um, we're in the last sermon in, in like a, a lot of sermons in, in, in this wonderful book of Exodus. And, and I just want to caveat from the beginning. Um, you're here on somewhat of an unusual Sunday sermonically in, in the life of this congregation. So if you, if you actually look, the text here on your bulletin, page 8, is Exodus 40, 16 through 38. Now, those of you who've been with us and you've been working your way through us through the book of Exodus, you're a little bit like, hmm, I remember Exodus 34 last week. How is it that we are in Exodus 40 uh, this week? Did you have that question? And some of you are like, you think we're paying attention far more than we actually are in eight. We didn't even realize that yet. But nevertheless, some of you did have that thought, and I'm here to answer it. All right, so what are we actually doing this morning if we're, if we're you know, sort of jumping over, as it were, chapters 35 through, through 39 and even a section of, of chapter 40? Well, if you're familiar with the book of Exodus, you know that this section, the last part of the book of Exodus, 35 through 40, is about the tabernacle. It's about the, the carrying out of the erecting, the building, the assembling, and the anointing of, of the tabernacle. And it's all of the instruction that we've actually already covered back in Exodus 25 to 30. It's almost, almost verbatim. The, the exact same section, except there's the difference in that the instruction is being given in Exodus 25 through 30 from the Lord to Moses on Mount Sinai, and here it's actually being carried out. We're actually seeing the building process of the tabernacle take place in chapters 35 through 39. Now, I just know that you guys remember everything that we teach here at Cornerstone. And I, I, I took it upon myself to assume that you did not need to go through the entirety of, of Exodus uh, chapter 35 through, through 39 and, and part of, of chapter 40, but instead would appreciate it if we treated in some condensed form, we'll see how condensed it is, in some condensed form this morning, chapters 35 through 40, by focusing on this last section in this glorious book. And so, yes, you're not going to get short shrifted, I promise you. I've carved out several hours for the sermons as we work through this whole section uh, here at the end. Now, we'll look at just those few verses in Exodus 40, 16 through 38, but we'll We'll dip back into some of these chapters we're not going to give a deep treatment of, just so we can see the beauty of what it is that the Lord has in store for us in this section of Scripture. Before I read it, right, I have several comments here, right, before I read it. Um, I was, someone sent me last night an a article, maybe 9 o'clock-ish or, or so, on, on what appears to be uh, was a story about a spiritual awakening happening in um, a university, Asbury University in Kentucky, over the last several days. I don't know if anyone's seen any of the articles on, on this. Um, apparently, it's a four or five day uh, event uh, has, is happening where people are coming to know the Lord in significant numbers. Um, 
uh, corporate repentance and thanksgiving is, being, is happening for hours on end, uh, unplanned in the chapel there at Asbury. Praise the Lord for those things. I don't know a lot about its, its details and am not by mentioning it to you today, commending or, or condemning or anything other than reporting. That's what I'm doing as I mention it to you. But something in my own heart in reading the article last night just leapt with encouragement and with joy uh, that some level of genuine spiritual revitalization or awakening is happening with a group of people at a certain spot in North America right now. And that's a cause for rejoicing. And it's further a cause for us to say, Lord, do that here. It's a further cause for us to say with some sense of urgency and desire, Lord, do that here. Uh, Awaken us to the work and the power of the gospel and the movement of your spirit, even in in the generation in which we live. Lord, do that work here. I I pray something of that is on your, your heart as we enter the text of Scripture today, that that's a genuine desire of yours. Now, I realize sometimes... Uh, these events and, and what happens in them can be um, less than authentic, less than true, even in some cases fraudulent. I, I, again, don't know the details. But my heart simply leapt to say, Lord, a genuine renewal and spiritual awakening is needed among your people and in our time and place where we live. Bring it, Lord. Spread it. Let your glory come. Let your your power reign and be manifest and and evident among your people. And I just I want to ask you to, just even as we are entering into this text of Scripture today, to just quietly enter into prayer with me on that. That the Lord would be pleased to pour out His Spirit and His graces in a demonstrable way. In a way that men couldn't rob Him of His glory. And where it would be unmistakable to the world around us that something inexplicable from a human standpoint has happened and that heaven itself has come down to earth. Because the text which we are about to look at in Exodus chapter 40 is, shall I say it, heaven coming down to earth. And it is the future that we are all headed towards who are in Christ Jesus, who long for his return and the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. And wouldn't it be wonderful in a, in a powerful demonstration of His Spirit for us to be able to taste that kind of glory in our own generation and put our hearts and our heads to it. So pray along those lines even as we consider uh, this text of Scripture together from Exodus chapter 40. We'll pick up the reading in verse 16. Now this Moses did... What is this that Moses did that we're reading? This Moses did is putting together all of the tabernacle. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him. So he did. In the first month in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. 
He took the testimony and he put it in the ark and he put the poles on the ark and he set the mercy seat above on the ark and he brought the ark into the tabernacle and he set up the veil of the screen and he screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle, and he set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle, and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and offered on it burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet when they went into the tent of meeting. And when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen on the gate of the court so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, when they did not set out till that day it was taken up, for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Father in heaven, we believe this is your word to us right now. You have planned that we would be here at this moment from before the foundation of the world. And it is by no happen chance that we are here at the conclusion of the book of Exodus where you, as it were, Come down from the mountain to dwell among your people and to reveal your own glory to them. To lead them by your presence that they might make it all the way to the promised land and there dwell with you in unity. Lord, there's something of that that's happening spiritually in the lives of all of us here in this room. We are a pilgrim people if we have trusted in Christ. We're a people who are on the way. In the wilderness of this world, we are citizens of the world that is to come. We look for the day of Christ's return, the new heavens and the new earth, and the place that He's gone to prepare for us. We long to be prepared to meet Him face to face. We would ask that you would now, by your Spirit, prepare us in just that way. And if it would be your will and pleasing to you, that you would come down in a special way by the power of the Holy Spirit into our lives today, that we would mark this day as a kind of Ebenezer in our own life together, that indeed this day we have met with the Lord and we are forevermore changed 
Fill this place with your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this book, this book of Exodus, which we have been studying for quite some time, is, is a book, if you've been with us, I imagine you, can, you, you could summarize in some way, shape, or, or form, if by a, no other way than by the title of this book. It's, it's called The Exodus. It, it, it clearly is about d- departures. It's about exiting. It's about, it's about getting out and primarily, and what you think of, if I can get in your head, if I presume to do that, what you think of when you hear the word exodus is leaving Egypt and God leading the people of Israel in the wilderness. Is that what you think of? That's what I tend to think of when I think of the book of Exodus. But what's interesting is, if you're really paying attention to the narrative of the book of Exodus, we arguably could say that it's not primarily about getting out. The getting out is actually just a means to a much greater end. The book of Exodus, by its ending, is telling us that it's not about getting out. It's about God getting in. It's about God getting in to the life and the heart of His people by the power of His glory. That's what this story is really about. It's not just about getting out. It's about God getting in. And preparing us from the inside out for the ultimate getting in. The getting in when we cross over that Jordan for the final time. And we end up face to face before the Lord Jesus Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. Where we will truly see the fullness of glory. This story is about a glorious entrance. Now, I want to just remind you of a little bit of how this story speaks to us and how it speaks to us of how the glory of the Lord gets in. We've seen the glory of the Lord through this book, starting back at the beginning of the book of Exodus, through all those plagues where God, raising up Moses and then commissioning him to be the leader of the people of Israel, sends him with power to enact the plagues of the greatest nation of the world, Egypt at the time, and humble their gods and humble their leaders and bring out his people by his righteous right hand. We saw that in the first 15 chapters of the book of Exodus. We saw that after they had crossed through the Red Sea that God provides for His people. We learned that deeply. There they are in the wilderness. And what does God do? He rains bread from heaven. He gives them water from the rock. He provides quail in abundance more than they can even consume. He is a God who provides. He is a God who leads. He leads them, doesn't He, to the very base of Mount Sinai. It's there that they encamp, and we read of Moses going up on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20, where he begins to receive the law, the Ten Commandments, and later in those 40 days on the mountains, the book of the covenant, all the social laws for the people of Israel, and then finally being given in chapters 25 to 31, the instruction regarding the tabernacle, the building of the dwelling place of God on the earth. You'll remember in chapter 32 of the book of Exodus, we hit one of the lowest points in Israel's history up to now. Uh, Moses is coming down the mountain with those Ten Commandments, with those tablets from the Lord. And before he gets to the bottom of the mountain, they've already broken all of the commandments. 
He sees them worshiping a golden calf. And we see the judgment and the wrath of God is ultimately poured out upon His people. 3,000 die. We're told a plague comes upon them. And in a very real sense, Exodus 32 is teaching us that the people are out of Egypt, but Egypt is still very much in the people. These people are idolaters. Indeed, the Lord Himself reveals that through giving to them a plague that should be reminiscent of the early part of the book of Exodus. And they have created a God, an idol, likened to the things of the world, just like the people of Egypt. There is lots of work still to do with the people of Israel. That's what we learn in Exodus 32. And then in Exodus 33 and 34, we learn that God can't dwell with holiness. God can't dwell with the unholiness of His people. He is a holy God. He is going to distance Himself from His, his people. He's going to keep His promises. He'll, he'll get them to the promised land. He'll send an angel before them. But He Himself will not dwell with His people lest, He tells us, He consumes them. Because of His wrath and because of His judgment, His holiness being too close to an unholy and sinful people. But it was through Moses, wasn't it? In chapter 33 and 34, where the intercession between him and God on behalf of the people of Israel ultimately opens up God to his covenant promises. Where he says, I have a favor on you, Moses. I have a special relationship with you and and I want you to go with my people on my behalf. And Moses says, I don't want to go with with your people without you going with your people. But if you'll go with me and I go with your people, that means that you'll go with your people through me. And therein might be the dwelling place that you as God might be with your people in the promised land. And that's exactly what God ultimately relents, we're told, and goes exactly according to the intercession of Moses. And it's there in Exodus 33 and 34 we see the beautiful forgiveness of the Lord. We see the pardon of the Lord towards His people. But we also see God's holiness and faithfulness not compromised. And we have a path now through a mediator by which a holy God might dwell with an unholy people. That he might keep his promises and still be in communion with them. The whole book of Exodus has been about God taking his people out in order that he might be close to them and lead them to a land where he might dwell intimately with them forever. That looked compromised in Exodus 32, but it was Exodus 33 and 34 where we see through Moses the mediator the accomplishment of the mission that God had originally set out for could be accomplished yet again. That leads us to really the section we're in right now. Chapters 35 through 40, and what I want you to see is essentially chapter 35 begins with a discussion on the tabernacle, and if we can put it a little bit in vernacular, it's essentially God saying, As Moses came down from the mountain, the first task that they were to accomplish was the building of the tabernacle. But then the golden calf happened. And then the intercession of Moses happened. And we have this sort of parenthesis of crisis that has taken place in the story. And now chapter 35 is in play. And God essentially is saying, now where were we? Oh yes, the tabernacle. Let's go back and let's rehearse Everything that I've told you about the dwelling place of the tabernacle. Because clearly you need a refresher. Clearly you need a refresher of the mission that we're, we're on. And chapters 35 through the first part of chapter 40 is exactly that. If we were to go back and look at chapters 25 to 30, you would see it's almost a mirror image of the section uh, that we're in currently here. The difference is... 
What has changed is not so much the content. What has changed is the spiritual condition of Israel who will receive the content. And that is fundamental. The the people of Israel were hardened in idolatry when they had first been given the instructions with regards to the tabernacle. They had already failed before they had even received it. But now they've had to go through the crucible of humility. They've had to own the reality of the depth of their sin. They've had to engage with a holy God through the mediator Moses. They've had to have the experience of being being, as it were, publicly humiliated before their God and their God loving them and forgiving them and restoring them. And now as God comes and speaks to them, something clearly has been recreated in the heart and the life of the people of Israel. They have changed through the process of that humility, through the pouring out of God's grace in the midst of their offenses. They have become a different people and guess what? They're receiving God's commands in a very different way. You see, one of the major fruits we see in the life of the people of Israel is in chapters 35 into chapter 40, is we actually see, get this, because you don't get to see it often, we actually get to see the people of Israel obey. Now everything that comes out of the lips of God over and over from 35 to to 40 is that the people did exactly what it is that the Lord commanded. He asked them to bring contributions for all the resources needed for the tabernacle. We're told by the end of that chapter that they brought so much that there's more for a tabernacle and then another tabernacle to be built. They had to restrain the people from bringing any more. They brought so much at the command of God. And then the craftsmen are all released. Everyone who God had given skill and intelligence to put the various parts of the tabernacle, building them in excellence. They did it perfectly. At the end of chapter 39, Moses, it says, looks over their work. He sees that they have finished it and it is all well and he blesses them. And then we enter into chapter 40 and we find Moses has been tasked to put together all the parts of the tabernacle. The inner sanctuary, all of the altars, the outer sanctuary, everything that's around it. He has been tasked to be the one who will erect the tabernacle. That's where we actually are in Exodus chapter 40. That's what he's doing in that long section that we read just a second ago in verses 16 through 33 before the glory cloud of the Lord comes down. And I don't know if you noticed this, but there was a theme in that reading. The theme in that reading was a theme of obedience. Over and over and over, you read the theme of obedience. Notice there in verse 16, Moses did all of this according to all that God commanded. It's an opening phrase in this section. After that, from verses 17 to 33, that same phrase will be used seven times. And it's said in a cycle. If you look in your, in your Bible, you'll actually see every other verse includes that phrase. There's a, there's a rhythm to the way that it's, that it's structured, almost like a literary pattern has been embedded in the text. That every time Moses goes and takes these frames and poles and these tents together, it then says... He did it exactly as the Lord commanded. And then as he did it with the bronze altar and put it in his place, he did it exactly as the Lord commanded it. And over and over, the drumbeat of obedience is what we see reverberating through the text. Now, what does that teach us? What it teaches us is that on the heels of God's grace of forgiveness 
and the outpouring of God's kindness in forgiving Israel for their sins and covenanting again to uphold his promises, he recreated the people of Israel from the inside out. These are people with changed hearts now. They are beginning to manifest the kind of change that comes when we have literally had God now as our pleasure. The one in whom is our deepest treasure. The one in whom now is our joy to follow. They now have heard his commands and it is not to them a feeling of restriction or a heaviness of duty. His commands have come to, them, come to them as a delight and a pleasure. They can't wait to do what it is the Lord has called them to do. That's a change. Do you remember the, this is the same people of Israel, just so we're clear, who less than a year ago was complaining about not having bread in the wilderness. In fact, fascinatingly, the date that's given to us here in chapter 40 is exactly one year from the time that the Exodus began. It's exactly one year. So all that's taken place is within the context of a, of a whole year. Here we are at the end of the book of Exodus. Now the Ebenezer is being set up. What is that Ebenezer? It's the tabernacle. The tabernacle is going to be, if I can put it this way, a living portable Sinai. It's where the glory of the Lord had been, high up on the mountain at a safe distance from the people, is now coming down into the camp to lead the people to the promised land. This glorious Ebenezer is a picture that God has done an amazing work in the life of the people of Israel. He has recreated them from the inside out. And interestingly, because He is recreating them from the inside out, changing their hearts, we also see that He's using them. How is He using them? To create a new world. Now what do I mean by that? That seems awfully ambitious. <laughs> that he recre recreated them from the inside out by faith and, and grace. Through the process of covenant renewal. Through the humiliation and then the being set upon the rock of God's kindness and surety of his promises. That he's recreated them in order that they might create a new world. Well... When we were looking at chapters 25 through 31, which was the instructions of the tabernacle earlier in this series, you might remember that we referred to the tabernacle at that point in time as like an alternate world, like a separate cosmos, like a place set apart within the world that was out of this world. It was, was going to be the, the earthly throne room of God himself. That heaven was going to be transported in some very real sense through the tabernacle onto the earth. Which is why when you, when you enter into the tabernacle, it had the colors of heaven. It had the, the elements of the earth about it. It had, it had an otherworldliness about it that you couldn't even enter into. Even the priest's garments wasn't anything normal of what the people of Israel would have wore in their day. They would have literally looked like something from another world because the tabernacle was another world. It was a different cosmos. It was, it was heaven coming to earth. It, it was a newly created world. The most important thing that had been lost in the world in which the people of Israel lived was now being gained once again through the creation of the tabernacle. What was that? Well, the presence of God. The very presence of God was once again going to be on the earth. 
Now, if you go back to the story of Genesis, isn't that exactly how it began? It was a beautiful garden, this wonderful creation where God had erected and assembled and anointed a world, uh, christened, as it were, with his own fingers, uh, blessed with image bearers who were meant to model him, but image bearers who, like the people of Israel earlier in the book of Exodus, did what? Disobeyed. And in their disobedience, what happened? They were exiled. They were led out, as it were, east of Eden. They were put into a, a wilderness. A, a place where all of the fruit of the garden was inaccessible to them and the communion with God was, was no longer. What was the tabernacle? Well, the tabernacle, of course, is a recovery, a bit of a glimpse into that sanctuary garden from long ago. Revisioned. For a world now trapped under sin and fallenness. A, a picture of God recovering, if I can put it in some way, a little bit of a beachhead. For, for where the gospel of the good news of His grace would spread throughout the world. It was, it was the beginning of a new, a new creation. This, this heaven was coming down to earth. And He's now using the likes of Israelites to bring that, that about. And it was done beautifully on the heels of, of their obedience. That, that something here, even of Moses, when he's, when he's building the tabernacle, doesn't it read, well, it should read, a little bit like the days of creation. Didn't I mention that there were seven times that it was mentioned and he did all according to the command of God? Well, I don't know if you remember how many days there are in the creation story, but there, there are seven do you remember a drumbeat in the creation story that every time God had put together the world at the end of those days, he paused himself and in that pause said, it was very good. As if to say the work that I did was brought to completion right according to design. That Moses now is building another cosmos with the tabernacle and putting it together with the help of God's people on the heels of obedience, imaging God being fruitful and multiplying. And at the end of each section of the tabernacle, the pause is, and he did everything according to what God had said. It was good, in other words. There was a, there was a benediction here that's in the midst of it. It's a, it's a recognition that a second creation story is taking place at the end of the book of Exodus. You don't tend to think, right, of Exodus as a, as a genesis, <laughs> as, as a beginning, but that's exactly what's happening. There's a beginning at the beginning of Exodus where the people of Israel brought out, but there's a, a new beginning, even a new cosmos emerging by the end of Exodus. And notice it's a cosmos where, where walking worthy of the Lord and the fullness of His commandments is part of the joy and the delight that God Himself takes up in order to have, inhabit the tabernacle. It's a beautiful picture. Now when you look over this text, you begin to realize that all over the place, God is, is giving displays of, of the created order. Over and over, He's displaying the, the pattern of what it is that His mission A has always been and that He's not abandoning. That He wants to dwell in perfect communion with His people, resembling Him in likeness, that we might be able to see Him face to face and not be consumed. He is after that mission and has been after that mission from the beginning of the pages of Scripture. And He's carrying that thread through at the end of the book of, of Exodus. 
You know, it's even striking, isn't it, when we read, well, there in verse 33. In verse 33, where it says that Moses finished his work. Did you pause just a little bit there? The very end of the building of the tabernacle. What did Moses do? He he finished his work. Does that sound a little bit like Genesis 2? Where where God on the Sabbath day finished his, his work. And he rested, he rested from his, his work. And, and, and doesn't, it, doesn't the last section of the book of Exodus feel a little bit like a Sabbath? Well, in what way, Nate, exactly does it feel like a Sabbath? Well, well, by the fact that God comes down. By the fact that the book of Exodus actually ends, as it were, in what the Sabbath is all about. What is the Sabbath all about? It's about being with God. It's about the presence of God. Didn't you notice that as soon as Moses had finished his work, when everything was in place, God, the king, came down and he filled the tabernacle full of his glory. Do you know that's really, believe it or not, why you're here today? Do you know you're here today because this day and this time has been set apart as as holy unto the Lord that we might meet with him. That we might know His presence. That we might glimpse by faith His glory. That the story of redemption might be woven a little deeper into our hearts. That we might be changed so that this coming week, increasingly by God's grace, the instinct of our soul would be to delight in the commands of God and to do them. And then to know that when we fail, we've got a God who renews covenant. A God who's willing to forgive. A God who's steadfast love and faithfulness is never ending. That we need to hear that reality and that message, that story over and over and over again. And as we hear it, as the Spirit of the Lord takes it and works it into us, what begins to happen is we actually begin to look a little bit more like our Lord. We begin to take up the mantle with the confidence of His grace. We begin to long for heaven to come to earth in every sphere in, in life. We begin to pray. Pray for spiritual awakening. We, we, begin to, we begin to not play with sin, but take it seriously. We, we begin to look at the needs of our neighbor and we move towards them and not away. We begin, in other words, to take up the character of the one who saved us. We begin increasingly to be shaped and fashioned into His likeness. This really is the story of Exodus, but friends, isn't this the story of the Christian life? Isn't this the calling that each one of us is on? Not just unique to the people of Israel, but but real to us as 21st century Christians in in Middle Tennessee, in this faraway place and corner of the world, at least from the spot in which we're reading in the book of Exodus. This this place is now being taken up, as it were, by the tabernacle. The dwelling place of the living God. Because you know, we don't have a tabernacle like they had in the Old Testament, do we? You know, as lovely as this this building is, this is not not actually um, designed in the pages of Scripture. You see, it's not ordained by the Lord in the way that the tabernacle is ordained by the Lord and prescribed in the pages of Scripture, as lovely as a, as a place it is. But God is actually building a, a more, if I can put it this way, more profound temple. 
Do you see, every part of the temple actually spoke, well, to a, to a greater temple that was coming. To, to a greater tabernacle that would be, be coming. We're, we're even told, because you know some of the pages of Scripture here, even after the book of Exodus, is though we're emphasizing, and the text emphasizes the obedience of the people of Israel, let's, let's be honest here, that doesn't last long. It lasts about as long as your obedience and mine. You know those moments in your life where you have embraced the commands of God with joy? And it has been light to carry them out. You have, you've heard the phrase of Jesus, my yoke is easy and my load is light. And you realize that when you are focused upon the beauty and the glory of who God is, and when the Spirit has captured the affections of your heart, to go forth and do what it is He's called you to do is a light and easy yoke. It is a joyous thing. You, you know the experience of that. And you also know that it lasts 2.5 seconds. It's just enough of a glimmer in your life to sort of ruin you. Meaning you know what it ought to be and you know how quickly it comes and goes. Intending to make you long for more of it. For more of it. That's why we come each week to meet with the Lord, to be changed, to be reminded, to have increasingly our hearts under His rulership and reign by delight. That when He says, bring your gifts to the altar, we bring enough for two tabernacles. That when He says, do it this way, we say, yes, Lord, with joy. Because we want to walk in close communion with the one who has loved us like He has loved us. And nothing would... Nothing would give us more zeal than for His presence to be closer to us. Do you know that was in the heartbeat of this renewal and spiritual awakening moment, which was why last night when I read that article about Asbury University, regardless of what it is that's actually happening, I thought to myself, there's something of a spiritual awakening right here in this text. A people that have been so changed by the grace of God that now, giving up the things that are most precious to them are their joy. Because they have now found their treasure, not in this world, but in something out of this world that is coming into this world. Even the Savior Himself. Do you know Jesus, when He comes, John tells us that He is the tabernacle. He came and He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. He was full of grace and truth. He was the glory of God. And the building that he's building, I want you to take it in. It's marvelous. It's, it's unlike any architectural feat in human history. The building that he is building is you. You are those living stones, you see. You are his temple. You are his dwelling place. You are founded upon Christ who is the cornerstone. You're founded upon the apostles and the prophets who are the stones stacked in and around him. You, the people, are ultimately and always have been in view as the tabernacle, the temple of the living God. This is why when you come here, don't you, don't you realize this? Don't you experience this, people of God? When you come into the presence of the Lord with God's people and you hear his gospel, when you sing the hymns, when you, when you pray, you think to yourself, why can't the rest of the week be like this? Why can't I have this kind of refreshment, encouragement? Why can't I have this kind of perspective? This is like a foretaste of heaven. 
When you have those moments in the midst of, of church, in the midst of the gathering of the saints, do you know what you're actually having? You're having a true foretaste of what is your future in Christ. Do, do you desire for that to happen more? Do you desire for the Lord to take, well, increasing, conquering power over the aspects of your life and your heart? Think of the areas of stewardship right now where you say to yourself, oh no, he can't have that. Think of the parts of your life where you've decided, no, I'm just going to make a happy alliance with this sin. I'm just going to try to keep it within its boundaries, but I'm not going to try to put it to death. Think of those areas. Yes, he wants those. He wants those all addressed, but he doesn't want them not merely from a place where you say, oh, shucks, I'll do it because you've asked me so, asked me to do so. He wants it from a place where you realize that those are the things that are actually keeping you from the close communion that you really want with the Lord. Those are your golden calves, you understand. Those are the things that you say are more precious to me than, than the presence of the Lord. Now, you'd never say that, you understand, but when you do that, you say that. That's what it says. And the Lord today is actually saying, I want to call that out. I want you to know that I'm a covenant-keeping God. That the mission is, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm coming back. And the gates of hell can't prevail against this mission. It's happening. Do you want to get ready for that day? And along the way, do you want to know me with ever-increasing intimacy and joy? Give it all to the Lord. Hold, hold nothing back. That's what he's saying. Hold nothing back when he gives a command. Let's go. Let's go. Understand that his commands are not meant to restrain you. They're meant to release you into the joy of his presence and the fulfillment that comes with his grace. That's what they're for. Do you know, parents, you know in here, when you tell this to your children and you're saying no to something and they just think you're a cosmic kind of killjoy in their life, and you, however, as the parent, you can see the dominoes that are going to fall with this, right? You, you actually gain through life and experience and, and maturity some what we might call prescient or, or wisdom or prophetic powers where you can say, if you keep doing this, this ends in a bad spot. But when we hear no in the moment, what does it, it feel like? Or when we hear the demand of the moment, what does it feel like? It just feels like... You're robbing me of what I desire. When, it, when in actuality, the Lord is actually after the deepest desire in your heart. The one that is often covered up by the things of the world. He's after the deepest desire in your heart. Do you know what that desire is? That desire, whether you know it or not, is to be at home with Him. And for Him to be at home with you. That's, what, that's why you can't sleep at night. That's why you're restless when you're on vacation. This is why you've never gone to a place and not been homesick. Because you've been made for that place. And that place is being prepared for you. As you walk through life, when you begin to understand that, when you begin to, when you begin to live that out, real life begins to show up. The kind of life that is, well, let me say it, not of this world. The life of the Spirit. Now, I just ask you, I mean, how do you, how do you want the remainder of your days to be lived? 
How do you want, how do you want the remainder of your, your day still be lived? For some, for some of you, that seems like forever and ever away. It's hard to even take a question like that seriously. For others of us, that's closer to home, isn't it? How, how do you want the remainder of your, your days to be lived? What, what investment in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ that actually has eternal value and impact do you want to give your time and energy to? What's holding you back from doing it? What's, what's holding you back from doing it? What are the big risks that are worth taking for an eternal investment and value impact that you know the Lord through His promises will bear? What are the risks? They think that's where the Lord is calling to us because in the midst of that, He says, I will meet you there. I will meet you there. I will dwell with you. I love you. I'll pick you up when you, you fall. But don't give yourselves to the golden calves of this world. Be a part of the mission of seeing the temple of God built here through the power of the gospel, saying yes to the call of the Spirit. Be that part answer that He has crafted you, O man and woman of God, to be. As we conclude the book of Exodus, you see we're very much in the midst of being a pilgrim people, aren't we? We haven't yet come home. Moses is going to fail later in this story. The people of Israel are going to fail later in this story. Moses doesn't even make it into the promised land. He doesn't even get in. He does get out of Egypt, but he doesn't actually get into the promised land. All of it points to the fact that someone like Moses, but better than Moses, is needed. And he's the one that you have been hidden in by God's grace. Christ Jesus stands right now interceding for you. Let the past be past. Set your face towards the future. Hear the call of God right now. How is he calling you to obey him? To walk according to the eternal values set forward in the scriptures. What does he want you to lay aside that keeps you from running the race that's set before us? What does he want you to lay aside in order to lay hold of the author and the perfecter of your faith? He's running right there alongside you. And to be honest, most of the time he's carrying you. It's worth giving up everything to follow him and to see by God's grace whatever happens in Asbury happen here and in Timbuktu until the whole of the earth is full of the glory of God. Oh, Father in heaven, as we conclude Exodus, I pray we never conclude Exodus. I pray the teaching of this masterful work that you have given to us and are speaking to us from would ring and resonate in our heads and our hearts for years to come. Lord, let the Spirit fall. Let the work of the gospel come and flow through us. Let it be unavoidable that we would say yes to your commands and find it our happy choice because we know what we have been saved from. We know what we have been saved toward then why not give all towards it right now, always? Lord, to the degree that this needs to land in every heart here in this room, to that degree, would you by, spirit, by the Spirit right now portion out the grace to answer it? That we might see in days and years to come the way in which you have been at work in and through this body, through the souls that are here. That we would line up for testimony and to prayer that we would rejoice in the conversions, in the overcoming of, 
of addictions and abuse and the challenge of of sinful besetting declensions that have been a part of our existence for far too long for the ways in which we've dabbled in religion and have called it faithful Christianity. For those things, Lord, to be able to be testified to in the future that today and through this series and through the days to come, you're renewing your church, you're reviving her. Lord, we need it. Indeed, unless you build that house... We who will labor, well, we labor in vain. But you are building this house. And you will build this house. So we call upon you by the power of the Spirit in us and through us. Build this house for the sake of the fame of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King. This we ask in His holy name. Amen.